problem is preventing the gospel's growth and spread. In other words, uh, they are, they're trying to take and impose, the Jews are trying to impose their tradition and their way of thinking on the Gentiles. And, and really what it assimilates to is this, that, that they are trying to force the Gentiles that are converted to come in to the Jewish nation or the Jewish church as they had to be proselytized in in the Old Testament. They're trying to take all the Old Testament law that would bring someone from the outside a Gentile in and make them a Jew, in essence, uh, and accepted. They're trying to put the Gentile Christians through that same process. That's, that's essentially their thinking and their goal. And Paul's not having it. Uh, he's like, this is not what uh, the Holy Spirit has directed. This is not what the Lord has taught me over the three years in the wilderness. This is, this is something that, uh, that I've got to deal with and to clear up. And so we see them struggling to accept the Gentiles into the church. And, and the fact that the early church often met in a synagogue didn't help. Because everywhere in all these communities across uh, the, the Roman Empire, where there were at least 10 Jews in the community, there was a synagogue. Uh, and so, the, and you see Paul, when he would go someplace, he went almost, if there was a synagogue, he first went to the synagogue and preached. And so the natural meeting place for the early church would have to gather in the synagogues until they couldn't and they began to meet in houses. Uh, and so uh, th th it didn't help things for them to come into this place where Gentiles weren't even permitted to enter. Uh, and to now be formulating a church. And so it was an obstacle and a roadblock. And so Paul's here. He's already, he's already settled this with Peter, James, and John. And so he's already had discussion. He's already made the trip. He's already had a conference, if you will, with the leadership of the church. And we don't have time to look at this part real deeply this morning. But when he first went, he, the, the order in which he addresses them is different and now he's addressing James first. So James has emerged. James has risen in the rank structure. And this James is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And he essentially is a pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And so Peter, the apostle, and John are there. They're central. And so when Paul goes and he's in conference with them, he's with the leadership of the church, but they're included. And so they're part of this, uh, this process as he is ad addressing it. Uh, and so here's the essential problem with, with Peter and with James and with John, but primarily James, is that they know intellectually that what Paul is saying is true and what Paul is practicing is right. But intuitively to them, it doesn't feel right. It's like, I know that this is a true gospel. And I know that it's, that we can't impose this on them. And they agree to that. And we'll read this in just a moment. But when the practical application of it starts to happen, there's a problem. And James is going to send people there basically to confront them and Peter which causes the problem between Peter and Paul. And so we'll see this as we, as we read on. And so Paul's there, he says in verse 2, I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the, go the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. And so Paul's very wise. Paul goes in, he says, we've got to settle this issue of the church. We've got to settle this issue of Jew and Gentile salvation. And so when he goes and meets with them, 
He does not meet with the full assembled body because it's too easy for that for for the crowd to get impassioned and for a mob to, to for it to turn into a mob. So he calls him and, and, and they have a private conversation. And that's what he's indicating here. And so they're able to hash this out. They're able to talk things through. They're able to express their fears, their concerns, and reconcile it with, uh, with Scripture and what God has given and what, uh, what they've been taught and what Peter's been given. And Paul's saying, listen, I'm going to talk to them privately because I don't want all the work that I've done to end up in vain because they come in behind me and undo it. And that's a problem in Galatia. The, the, the false teachers are coming in and they're threatening to undo what Paul has uh, done effectively with the gospel. And so he's, he's meeting with them. And then he says in verse 3, But neither Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of the false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you, but of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God uh, accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Uh, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward When James who is raised in Tarsus, who has come to Jerusalem. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. We know his pedigree. He, he's the persecutor of the church. The Lord Jesus meets him, converts him on the road to Damascus. He's put into the ministry. He's Jesus' chosen vessel to the Gentiles. Jesus takes him out into Arabia, trains him for three years as he trained the others uh, for three years. Uh, and now he is, is, is doing the Lord's work. Then you have uh, Barnabas. Barnabas is a Cypriot Jew. In other words, he's a Jew from the nation, island nation of Cyprus or Roman province of Cyprus. Uh, and so that's where he hailed from. But he's Jewish. Uh, and, and so they don't have so much of a problem with accepting uh, him. Number one, he's a Jew. Number two, he's followed the edicts of the law. He's, he's, he's been circumcised. He's followed the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, he's, he's met all of the criteria. But Titus, on the other hand, is a full-blooded Gentile. And it's interesting that Paul brings, these are the men that Paul brings with him for this meeting. He's saying, listen, I'm demonstrating for you here that this man is just as saved as this one. And God's power is on him just as it is on him. And there's not any difference between us and, and, and Paul's making the case. And they accept it. They're not fighting that. They're not arguing that. Intellectually, they're on the same page. They're, they extend to them the right hands of fellowship. Uh, and Paul's gone from there believing in his heart that this is reconciled and everything is good. Now, why is this so important? It's important because if this doesn't get resolved, what's going to emerge is two distinct churches. 
not one. Jesus didn't want two brides, he wants one. And so he's, he's working this and bringing this together uh, so that they can confront these issues. And Paul makes the claim, he says, they understood that as the gospel was given to Peter to the Jews, it was given to me to the Gentiles. And it's interesting that Luke, and there, there is an argument to be made that Titus was the brother of Luke. Titus is one of the few New Testament characters that's never mentioned by name in the book of Acts. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, rarely if ever mentions his own name, but you can tell when he's present because he'll use the term we instead of they or you or just listing names. And so one line of reasoning is, <coughs> is that he deliberately left his brother's name out of it for the same reason that he left his own name out of it. Now, I can't tell you definitively with certainty that they were brothers, but, uh, but it's a reasonable argument that there's a closeness here. Now, in the book of Acts, what you see is that that Luke made great effort to detail specific things about Peter, and he made great effort to, to identify those exact same things in the life of Paul. Uh, for example, the first Gentile convert of Peter was Cornelius. The Bible tells us that. The first Gentile convert of the Apostle Paul was Sergius Paulus. The Bible tells us that. Uh, they were both visited by an angel. As Peter uh, was, healed a lame man, Paul healed a lame man. Uh, as uh, Paul m miraculously was released from prison, or Peter was miraculously re released from prison, so Paul was miraculously released from prison. Uh, as Peter's uh, shadow had great influence and healed, Paul's handkerchief at one point had great power uh, and healed. Uh, as uh, one was confronted, a musician, uh, and, and the, the, those seeking Holy Spirit power by demonic forces and confusing that, so Paul had a similar encounter. As the Gentiles came at one point and tried to worship Peter and then were giving his response to that, so Paul uh, was worshipped as he came into uh, a town and uh, were given the response to that. And, and so essentially as Peter raised someone from the dead, Paul raised someone from the dead. All of the things that validated uh, that the Holy Spirit power and the leading of God was on Peter to be the, the, the gospel giver in essence and, and the standard bearer, if you will, for the Jew. So Paul was validated by the Spirit of God to be the standard bearer to the Gentile. They're in equal standing. They're both apostles. They both sat at Jesus' feet for three years, though at different times. They both uh, have been called and had the hand of God put on them. Uh, and so he's going through this and he's saying, we hashed all this out in this meeting. And they extended to us the right hands of fellowship. We have an agreement. We're one body. We're one entity. We're one church going forward. But then watch what happens as we see it practically, the practicality of its manifestation. Uh, and so uh, he says, <clears throat> and when James and Cephas and John in verse 9 who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go into the heathen and they into the circumcision. Only that they would and should remember the poor, uh, the same which, which I was forward to do. So basically the only thing that they added additionally to me was something I was going to do anyway. And so we're in complete agreement here. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. So you've got two essentially... Churches that are, that are pillars 
in their respective communities. Uh, to the Jewish world, you have the church at Jerusalem, and to the Gentile world, you have the church at Antioch. It is the church of Antioch that sent Paul and Barnabas and commissioned them to go out and to do their mission work and to see the churches planted and organized uh, and raised up. Uh, and so it is under the authority of this church at Antioch. It's where Paul goes back to in between uh, journeys and where things seem to, seems to be the central hub to the Gentile world. Uh, for before certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing they which were of the circumcision. So here's the problem. Peter's here. They have this agreement. Peter comes up to Antioch. He's meeting with people, believers that he knows, some of which he's led to Christ. He's fellowshipping with them. He's had his vision. He's, he's, he's struggled to reconcile that he can eat whatever they provide. But he's gotten there. Uh, it's just been a difficult process. Uh, and so he's there and he's, he's enjoying and he's fellowshipping and everything is great. Until this entourage comes that James sends. Now it's significant because James is a pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Is sending people. And apparently, the group of people that he sent, who Peter would have known, have such an effect on Peter, and what they think has such an effect on Peter, and perhaps what they've said, though we don't know what a conversation would have gone on, has changed Peter's attitude and his outlook. So now, he was sitting here eating with everyone, now he gets up and goes over here with the Jews, and he only eats what they're eating. So Paul's enraged. Paul is, uh, is, is righteously angry. And he confronts Peter to the face. And that's what their argument is about in verse 13. <coughs> and the Jews, the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. Insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Uh, and so they're arguing dissimulation essentially means hypocrisy. And so the, the argument is over. Hey, uh, this is what you're doing is hypocritical. If you believe that, then do that when they're not here. If, you, if, you, if that's what you really believe and practice in their midst, that's one thing. But you're acting like you're all on board over here, and then now you're over here and you're not. It's almost like if I, uh, if I were to go out and, uh, and, and be out with somebody that is from another background uh, and everything is great and we have a lot of different ethnic backgrounds in our church and praise God for that. that that's been something that's been a matter of prayer and great effort. Uh, but it would be wrong if I were to, uh, if I were to go out and, okay, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting down and uh, I'm at a table with, uh, you know, somebody from the Philippines and somebody from uh, Latin America or my wife from Puerto Rico or, uh, or the Acostas from Cuba and then, uh, you know, some others maybe from other African-American descent and everything is great. And then this group of people come from this uh, racist background uh, that are all white come in and all of a sudden I get up and I've got to go sit with them and I can't interact with you while they're here because they're over there. That's essentially what's taking place here. I mean, just to put it in today's world and what it would look like in our church, it's like, okay, hey, hey man, uh, Brother Zeke, I love you. I'm so glad you're here. Miss Katrin, it's awesome to have you. Brother Mike, it's great to have you. Uh, my dear wife, Sonia, I love you. And, uh, and uh, Willie, it's, it's, it's good to see you here this morning. And then all of a sudden, Brother Bo shows up He's from Iowa, but let's pretend he's from somewhere like down deep south Alabama. Uh, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, and I'm all catering to him and I don't have any time for you. That's a problem. It's hypocritical. 
That's the problem at the church that Paul's dealing with. He's saying, listen, I'm not having this. We are one. The, the, the work of Christ has made us one. We are one in body, one in spirit, one in function, one in family, one in everything. There is no distinction between the Gentile and the Jew. Amen. And just, just for the record, in our church, in my heart and mind, there's no distinction uh, between, uh, between the white Anglo and the African American or the Mexican or the Puerto Rican or the Cuban or the Filipino, Ms. Harris not here today, uh, or anybody else. We are one. Amen. We work together. We labor together. We pray together. We serve together. We worship together because we are one entity in Christ. Why? Because that's the church that Jesus died to provide. I would avoid like the plague of no matter what ethnic group I was from, any church that only wanted to be among its own kind of people. Because if I'm saved by the blood of Christ, the, the, my brothers and sisters of Christ are my kind of people. Uh, and so beware of uh, that mentality and that, that, that uh, mindset. And, and Paul's addressing this and he's condemning Peter. Now to Peter's credit, and we're running out of time. We don't have time to go there. But at the end of 2 Peter, Peter talks about our beloved Paul that, that gave us things that were hard for us to accept. Peter doesn't seem to have any bitterness or hard feelings toward Paul for this. He accepted the rebuke. He, he, he took it and he went with it. But James is the one that sent the problem. The pastor from Jerusalem is the one that caused the, the stink. He sent this group up there uh, to say, okay, and, and it's almost like this. It's like, intellectually, I get it. But when I start to see what it looks like in practical application, I'm struggling with this. Now, that's really the message this morning. Embracing the truth of the gospel. Why is that a problem, Pastor? Because that's where we live. We live in a world of religion and tradition. We live in the world that we were brought up in in our Christian faith. And so if you're here this morning, and our church is really a melting pot. If you look at this church this morning, uh, I can tell you what's here. There are people here that come from uh, a, an, an ultra hardcore fundamental background in Baptist terms. And there are people that are here that come from virtually contemporary Baptistic churches in their, in their background. There are people here that have been deeply hurt and wounded in their, church, in their church entities. Uh, some of them here. Some of them in churches in other places. Uh, there are some that, that, are, uh, that have been driven out of church. That have been by the grace of God reclaimed and brought back in. I'm one of those type of people. My wife is one of those type of people that we were away from the Lord for a few years. And then God got a hold of our heart and brought us back when we were in our, in our 20s. And, uh, and God did a great work in our lives and we're grateful for that. My point is this. We are as diverse ethnically as we are diverse spiritual religious background. And that's not a bad thing. That's the grace of God. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are some times when somebody that's from a really strict background and someone that's from a, a really uh, not strict background emerge together into what's really glorifying God and what God is putting together here, it's not always easy to accept that whenever you see it evolving. Well, this isn't, I get it, Pastor. I understand biblically, I understand intellectually, 
But whenever I get there, it just feels weird. It just doesn't seem right. And by the way, I'm, I'm with you. So what's our guiding light? The guiding light is not the previous generation. The guiding light is not what the culture wants. The guiding light is not what the culture's doing. The guiding light is thus saith the Lord. And when thus saith the Lord doesn't reconcile with church polity, the Bible is right and the church is not. And what we, what we see manifest itself is, is really a well-intentioned approach to Christian living that has turned itself in many cases into Phariseeism because it's just a matter of trying to put a yoke upon someone so that they fit into the mold that we think they should fit in. Now, listen, if the Lord Jesus Christ is residing in my heart and yours, my life should look more godly, more holy, more different. My attitude should be different. My, my joy meter should be different. Everything about me should be different. If, if it's not, there's something wrong internally. We need to worry a whole lot less about the external and pray a whole lot more for the internal. When the internal's right, everything out here will come around in time. God will be pleased in time. But God help us to not become or or to revert back to the type of church that, that measures someone's walk with God or godliness based upon what we see on the outside. When we have no idea what their experience has been internally. And Peter's grappling with this, and James is grappling with this, and Paul's standing there saying, no, I'm not going to have it. Embrace the truth of the gospel. Embrace, embrace the liberty of the gospel. Embrace the, the being set free of the gospel. And, and Jesus did not save us to put us into bondage, but to free us from bondage. Amen. Three thoughts this morning. Number one, the gospel frees us from religion. Verse number 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For the works of the law shall no flesh, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. First thought about this, number one, religion or law cannot justify. And this is the problem, why? Because, because the world religious system, no matter what name it goes by, whether it goes by Hinduism or Buddhism uh, or Catholicism uh, or some Orthodox, here's the message, it's all the same. It may have a different God, it may have a different, uh, a, a different uh, set of things governing it, but all is the same problem. And that problem is, is that it's telling you that if you do certain things, then you're justified. And if you don't do certain things, then you're not justified. Religion cannot justify. The law cannot justify. The law is here to condemn. The law helps maintain order. Uh, the law sets a, a, a code out that w- and a standard that essentially that we live by or there's punishment for in, in, a, in the cultural standpoint uh, so that, you know, if somebody murders you, steals from you, there's some recourse. But the law only condemns. That's all it does. That's all it's capable of. 
the, the whole purpose of God giving us the law was so that we would understand that no matter what we try to do, we're not enough. It's our schoolmaster to show us that we're insufficient, that we need Christ. The law condemns. If, if Pedro were to be arrested, uh, Melanie says, oh, finally he got arrested. Uh, if Pedro were to be arrested, uh, and so, uh, and, and he was brought into the court before the judge at his arraignment, uh, he, he cannot at the arraignment be justified. The law cannot justify him. He's going to enter a plea. Now the judge can issue a pardon. He can go to trial and the, and the jury can acquit him. Or he can be condemned. That's all that can happen. The judge can pardon. The judge can expunge. And essentially the world system is do this and you're righteous. But what Paul's fighting against and combating here is that that's just religion. And religion cannot justify. Many years ago, there was a man uh, in England who, who drove a Rolls Royce. And uh, he was getting ready to take a long vacation to France. And so he uh, loaded, he had his car, paid to have his car shipped over. So that whenever he got there and he met it, uh, he was able to get in his own car. And was able to drive it and take his vacation and uh, spend a, a, a couple of months in southern France. And while he was there, his Rolls Royce broke down. And this was in a day when warranties weren't a thing at that point. Uh, if something, you bought a new vehicle and something broke, you just had to pay to fix it. Uh, and so warranties just weren't a thing. And so, but he didn't feel like the problem was a problem that he should have been experiencing for the quality of the car, the price that he paid for the car, and the age of the car. And so he made a call to the company and he made his complaint. The company loaded someone up on a plane. They flew them over to France. They inspected his car. They found out what the problem was. They got back on a plane, flew back to England, got the part, flew back with a mechanic, fixed the car, gave him back his keys, and left. The man didn't expect for the problem to be resolved without cost. He, he just needed it to be addressed. And so he waited for a bill, but no bill came. And after a time, uh, he made a call back to the company and he said, on this date, this is my name, on this date, I had this problem and I called in and I, uh, and I, uh, I, I, you sent a mechanic out and then they had to come and I diagnosed the problem and they had to go back and get parts. They had to fly back over here and fix it and they left and I never got a bill. And they said, sir, we have no record of you ever having a problem with your car. That's the gospel. When you stand before God, a child of Christ, reconciled before God. Whenever the law says Pedro's a criminal, God says there is no record of his crime. That's what Jesus does. That's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not religion. That is relationship. And so we see the gospel frees us from the burden of religion. Why? Because religion and law cannot justify. Religion and law, secondly, can only condemn. That's all it's capable of doing. Secondly, this morning, in verse, we see that the gospel frees us from the religious. Now, we've read those verses down through verse number 14. All that I've been describing going on. Now we've gone from, okay, here's the religion, Judaism. But the problem has been the religious. It's been religious people. It's been people that want to coerce onto them their ideas and their thinking. And so what was the process here? And I'm going to run through this quickly because really we've already been through most of this. First, they came to an intellectual understanding. 
There was the conference with Paul and Barnabas and Titus and James and Peter and John uh, that we saw early in the chapter. Then there was, secondly, a growing to practical acceptance. But James sent men to confront the transition in verses 11 through 14. We agreed, but I don't like how it looks. So I'm going to send someone to confront that. Uh, and then Peter responds hypocritically, perhaps in fear of what they would think or under uh, their, the pressure from them. And then Paul confronts the problem. Now, listen, there's not two churches, there's one. The Jew and the Gentile are equal in Christ. We're here together. And then thirdly, we had to understand that they're striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, and we, uh, we know that, that verse well, uh, but Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, uh, he states it that way. Only let your conversation or your lifestyle, your habits of life, be as it becometh or is appealing, makes the gospel appealing to others of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. In other words, your testimony is such that you stand faith in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, for the faith of the gospel. What is the church to be? One spirit, one mind for the faith of the gospel. If I were to go on, I understand that it's not this way, but if I were to go on vacation and pick at random a New Testament church that's a legitimate church and go in, uh, then, uh, then I should be able to go in and feel as if I'm a part of it. Sometimes that's the case, sometimes it's not. And a lot of whether it's the case or not has to do with how well the, 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 the congregation and the pastor believe that we're one in Christ. But the gospel frees us from the religious. I'm glad this morning that I'm not here under the burden of religion. And I'm glad this morning that I'm not here under the watchful, burdensome eye of the religious. It's not my job to police you and it's not your job to police each other. Now... If I've got a relationship with Brother Don and Brother Don slipping off into something that is going to be harmful for him, for me to pull him to the side and say, Brother, I see some things that concern me. Can I help you with this? Can I pray with you about this? Uh, maybe you don't see this. Maybe this is a blind spot for you. That's admonition of a brother. But it's not public overly coercion. And if he doesn't come around, if I then begin to shun him or to marginalize him, then that's an ungodly spirit. That's trying to, to, to punish him or to force him to comply for the approval of a brother and sister in Christ. That's what Paul said in us free from here. Free from the religious. You're, you're not here to please me. I'm not here to please you. We're not here to please each other. We're here to walk together with Christ with one mind, one spirit for the faith of the gospel. To serve the Lord freely and strongly together. Striving together. Then thirdly consider this morning that the gospel frees us to live in righteousness. See, the problem with modern day Christianity is that a lot of people have just got the mindset that, hey, if the grace of God has given me liberty, that means I can go do whatever I want. It's not true. The grace of God gives me the liberty to live in such a way that I'm able to be holy and live for God and serve the Lord purely as he is directed. How does that manifest itself? Well, we see that here in the closing as I wrap up this morning in verses 21 and 20 and 21. Paul has addressed and confronted the problem of Peter. Basically, once you get to this point of the, of, the, of the text, when we get to verse 15, he's essentially telling us what he told Peter. This is his conversation with Peter. And so up through verse 15 or 14, he's confronting Peter. He's, he's calling him out. And he is confronting him to the face. Now he's telling us what the conversation was about. 
We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. In other words, I didn't, while I'm trying to impose upon you a certain level of righteousness, and it's discovered that I'm not living up to the same level of righteousness, does that mean that Jesus is the minister of sin? That he's okay with my sin? Because I'm in a position to police you? God forbid, he says. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. In other words, what, what he uh, has tried to uh, do away with in this religious overpression of, and, and manipulation, he said, I'm not going to build that again. For, and then he says, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. Listen, the, the law kills me. The law condemns me. The law was a schoolmaster to bring me to Christ and it brought me to Christ and now I have Christ. I don't need that anymore. It showed me enough of my wretchedness. I, I need to put that behind me and I need to walk with and glorify my Savior. And he says, I, 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 I want to live to God. I don't want to be killed by the law. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, Paul says to Peter. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said, listen, the old me is dead, the new me is here, and I'm living differently, but it's not even me that's doing it, it's the Spirit of God that's doing it in me. Amen. And hence our theme this year, we want to walk in spirit and truth. And now he's getting to the heart of the issue. He's saying, listen, uh, you can go out and you can try to do all kinds of righteous religious activity in the power of your own flesh, and you'll be frustrated, and you'll fail, and you'll mislead people away from the gospel, or you can die to self, and you can let Christ live through you and be what and become what he wants you to become. I'm living by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. In verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now listen, if I can be righteous by church attendance, baptism, uh, uh, Lord's Supper, going out and doing certain activities... Uh, whether it be uh, knocking on doors or passing out flyers, or if that's what makes me righteous, then Christ is dead in vain. If complying to what modern day Christendom says I have to do, as opposed to what the Bible says I should do, then Christ is dead in vain. We get that when we talk about salvation and baptism relation to salvation. We clearly do not get it when it comes to the practical aspects of the Christian life. It is something that we must understand and embrace uh, that the gospel sets us free. We are, we are to live a life crucified. What does that mean? That means I'm dead to me. I'm dead to self. If I'm living the crucified life, I am dead to myself. That means that I care more about your needs than mine. I care more about getting the gospel out than my comfort. 
I care more about spending and investing discipling someone uh, than, uh, than uh, entertaining myself. I care more about, uh, about, about how I present myself, how I talk, how I look, the words that I use, how it impacts the gospel message that I'm presenting uh, as opposed to my right to just do what I want to do. A life crucified. It's not a life uh, in which I'm dead to self. That means I can go and indulge myself. It is a life in which I'm dead to self in every aspect. It is a life of faith. In other words, it's a life in which I'm trusting God. Well, pastor, how do, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I do this? Trust the Lord. Trust his word. Follow his guidance. And thirdly, it is a life of grace. Following the Spirit's lead. Follow every impulse of the Spirit of God. If you're at a gas station and you're pumping gas and somebody comes up and, uh, and, they, and they look like, you know, that you just feel and sense the urge of the Spirit to, to speak to them or to share with them the gospel tract or uh, to, to just say a kind word, be obedient to that. That doesn't mean, and here's what this looks like in our world. Oh, I got to be soul conscious. That means I'm going to go out and, okay, I'm getting gas. I got it set. I got it clicked in. It's not going to click off until my tank's full so I can make a lap around the whole gas station and I can force everybody to take this. I'm not saying that that in and of itself is a bad thing. I'm saying it's a bad thing to feel like that's what I have to do in order to be a godly Christian or for God to be pleased with me. But be obedient to the Spirit's leading. Maybe I'm at Bucky's, and I'm, I mean, I got a pretty big tank in my truck. It's like 25 gallons, but it's not big enough for me to make my way across all 96 pumps at Bucky's. <laughs> now, if I'm at the gas station by my house, I might make a lap. But if I'm, if I'm there and I see somebody maybe three pumps over, not even the guy right next to me, and the Lord impresses on my heart, that person's receptive, then I'm going to be obedient to that. You understand what I'm trying to say this morning? The Christian life should be a life of, that's guided and led by the Spirit of God. Amen. How do I go? Where do I go? What direct, listen, and it's a simple things. Maybe it's the direction and the route that you take home today. You just feel an urge, a, com, a compelled to the Spirit to take a different direction home. And then you find out later that you were spared perhaps from a bad accident. And it's just little, simple things. Because that's what life is made up of. We want to think in terms of the big, grandiose ideas and things, end results. But end results only come to fruition because of small, minor details. Someone's life goes off a cliff and is wrecked. They didn't just drive down the road one day and everything is wonderful and their walk with God is wonderful and say all of a sudden, oh, you know what? I think I'm done. There's been a series of events that have led them to that point. Many of them below the surface that no one could even detect. But the Spirit of God knows. So perhaps this morning, if you see somebody that looks like everything is great, and the Spirit of God urges you to just go speak an encouraging word to them, you don't even necessarily have to find out what's going on. Just you feel in your heart, man, Miss Jan's really having a tough time today. I know, she lives with Brother Lynn. She feels that way every day. But, <laughs> but, I, but I just go out of my way to say an encouraging word. That might make all the difference in the world to her. That might be the difference in, 
That might be the difference in Andy making it back to church tonight or Wednesday or coming back ever again at all. It might make the difference to Pedro smiling or frowning. It might make a difference in Brother Terry getting lunch today or not. I know. Mom's there. She'll feed him if Dee Dee doesn't. Point being, the Christian life is not, it's not supposed to be about keeping the law. It's not about wearing a yoke of bondage of my sin or of my religious institution. It is about walking in the spirit and the grace of God. Don't misunderstand. Walking in the spirit and the grace of God doesn't mean that all of a sudden I look like the world and I'm justified to do so. It's really a lot about motive and attitude, our spirit, a life of grace. Paul says this, to worship and to live in the spirit and truth, we must understand and embrace the power of the gospel. There's a disconnect here. Intellectually, they're on the same page. In practical application, the Jewish church is struggling to come along. But they get there. I'm glad that they got there. And it's time that we get there too. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people that understand and experience what it is to live under the guidance and the direction of the grace and the spirit of the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to not be governed by religious activity, but may we be engaged in a meaningful relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that you would rebuke us. I pray that you would lift up the name of Christ in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, and I pray that you would help us to be a place where we come together and where we, we love and worship and serve you together as one. Regardless of background, regardless of religious background, regardless of ethnic background, regardless of any barriers that we bring with us from hurts and uh, being mistreated and being a victims of bad results, Lord, I pray that you would help us to just let those things go and let them be put under the blood of Christ and let us embrace the family of God that you've given us. Lord, help us to live in your power and by your might in your strength and in your truth. And Lord, may we worship you likewise. In Jesus' name, amen.